0: Good evening. It's good to be with you tonight. Uh, I'm Jason. I'm a pastor here with the house, and uh, I am really grateful uh, to get to share God's Word with you this evening. And uh, in light of something that, you know, Kirsten, the stuff that Kirsten was talking about earlier, uh, I know it's been, for many folks, it's been a, a strange couple of weeks. It's been a rough couple of weeks. I feel like... Um, You know some of the things that are frustrating about this cultural moment aren't fresh, and so it's just like, gosh, will this ache ever go away? Or there's just kind of like a a lethargy, or uh, maybe a uh, one of my favorite words is curmudgeon. So this comes up, like a curmudgeoniness. It's totally a word. Uh, It's kind of creeping in. Um, But I know folks are tired and everything. And quite frankly, um, you know, we we decided this semester we were going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, this section of the scriptures uh, from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's the first book in the New Testament, chapters 5 through 7. Um, we're going to talk about that. And when, when I looked at uh, the date on the calendar, this didn't strike me as a pretty despairing date or anything. Like people were going to be exhausted or whatever. I don't know if I would have changed it. But our scripture passage tonight is, it's a tough one. It's not uh, necessarily like super like, yay, uh, this is great. It's, it's a really intense um, calling that Jesus has upon our lives. And for any of those who would take seriously following him and living in his kingdom. Um, So it it is what it is. Um, And I ask you to hear the words of Jesus tonight um, and stick with me in this. It's probably not something that's on the front of our mind. What he's talking about is probably something we usually try not to think about. And when we're tired, it's like harder to do good work. You know, when we're like kind of at the end of our resources, it's way harder to make good decisions. And some of what Jesus is talking about tonight Um, is really, really big work. So let's start off light uh, with Jesus's, um, the, the words that were on his lips as he began to do his public ministry. Repent. It's the first word, repent, which means to change, to turn around, to turn. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? These are the inaugural words of his public ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, you see, was speaking about another way of life another way to be human in this world. And he lived it out in front of us so we could see what this other way of life and what it means to be uh, another kind of human in this world. We can see that in the person of Jesus. And he invites us to say yes to him, to discover what it would look like to, to live in him and in his kingdom. This is what Jesus is asking for. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And perhaps no distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world is more stark than the distinction that Jesus draws for us in the text tonight from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. In this command, he leads us to the most startling characteristic of his kingdom people. What is so nuts, what is so strange, what's so peculiar about the people who are in Christ and who are living in His kingdom, it's that they love even their enemies. That's what sets them apart. In the recent verses that we've been looking at in this section of Scripture, uh, a scholar named Michael Joseph Brown says, Jesus redefines what kinds of behaviors are worthy of honor among His disciples retaliation is to be replaced by reconciliation. Selfishness is to be replaced with generosity. When Jesus talks about tearing out your right eye, he is saying it's better to be dishonored yourself than to dishonor another. And then Jesus continues in our text tonight, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your left cheek also. If someone's suing you for your shirt, give him your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry their stuff for a mile, carry it too love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. These are the easy words of Jesus. This is part of what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, friends. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be part of the kingdom that he's bringing into the world, this is what life looks like. And the first thing I want you to see here is that none of this is talking about feelings. I had a conversation with somebody tonight about feelings. I wrote this before we talked. Suspena, okay? None of this is talking about feelings. Many of us have been convinced that faith or religion is primarily like a private matter, like something in my head or in my heart, right? And Jesus emphatically talks about his kingdom as a public reality. A new way of corporate, public life in the world. Life in the kingdom of God isn't simply about quiet times with the Bible in the morning, or whispered prayers before a meal, or personal convictions about virginity. Life in the kingdom of God will deal with your anger and your lust and your words and how you treat others in your heart, surely. It will do that. But life in the kingdom of God will also deal with how you treat others in public. So if someone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, we don't just feel a certain way about them in our hearts that's different. We confront them creatively. We love them in a way that is quite different from the norms of the world. And so notice in our text tonight, right, this, this whole thing, I hope you have the Bibles with you digitally or otherwise. Um, we put the verses in the chat too. Um, you can look at this as Matthew chapters 5, or chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Notice that in our text, Jesus doesn't tell us to just let these things happen. He isn't advocating for some passivity that treats human beings like doormats to be walked on. He doesn't tell us to run away. And perhaps most poignantly, he doesn't tell us to strike back. His invitation is to confront an offender. Not to turn away or to run away or to lay down, to confront an offender, to confront the person who strikes you on the right cheek, but to do so creatively and in a way that looks distinct from the patterns of this world. So just a a brief sort of um, highlight on first century world, like most scholars teach that in the first century, people interacted with each other with their right hands, right? That they wouldn't have even like touched each other with their left and so in order to get like struck on the right cheek, it would mean one of two things. And if it's helpful, be kind to each other. If it's helpful, you can practice this in your room so you can see how this works. But if I'm only gonna touch you with my right hand and I have to hit you on your right cheek, that means, that means I'm gonna have to backhand you. That's what that means. Or I'm gonna have to slap you with the palm of my left hand, and either of these would have been incredibly dishonorable. Even today, getting like backhanded, it seems like distinctly more dishonorable than getting just like punched or slapped regularly, right? And and, and either of these would have been dishonorable. And the natural response to such a thing, like the understandable way to respond to a thing like that in the world would be either to strike somebody back, hit them back, and we would all think somebody's justified in doing that, or potentially to like run away if you think you're going to get beaten up. Like those would, those would make some sense, right? But Jesus advocates for something different. He advocates for a creative confrontation, a third way, a third way. Man, Christians are called to a third way all the time. When somebody says, should I do this or that? It is, it's, I, it's almost all the time as a follower of Jesus, the answer is something other than those parameters. Here, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And some scholars think turning the other cheek is this way of saying, because hitting with the backhand is degrading. That would be like something for a slave or something like this, right? It's degrading. And so some scholars are like, turn the other cheek means hit me on my left cheek is a little bit like saying, hit me like you mean it, you know, <laughs> or something, right? And that's kind of, that's there's like bravado in that and I get it. But I wonder if like in line with the rest of the stuff that Jesus is teaching, if it's a bit more humble than that. I wonder if turning your left cheek is giving them another chance to engage you again as a human being and not as something to be dishonored. At the very least, it shows them, like, like here's what I mean by that. Like, if you slap me on my right cheek and I turn, you to, with, turn my left to you, is there a chance, is there a sense in which I'm saying to you, is this something you really want to do? Do you see what you're doing right now? At the very least, it shows them that you aren't mastered by your anger. Otherwise you'd punch him back nor your shame, you might cower or get defensive, nor are you mastered by their rules, but that you have a greater master that you serve. In the kingdom of God, we respond differently than the world. You see? Jesus offers two other examples in our text tonight of being sued for your tunic and being commanded to carry gear for a soldier, and they play out the same idea. The Christian response isn't passivity, nor is it to respond in kind, but to respond in a creative third way. A confronting of the other person in a way which exposes the realities of what's happening right now, provides opportunities for more relationship and testifies to another king. Friends, following Jesus will require creativity. I don't have notes after that. It just strikes me how many of us think so much of Christianity is looking up a question in a book and finding the answer. And we're starved for wisdom and imagination and creativity. There's so many examples off this talk, off the recording, we can talk about like, it would be a good exploration to talk about what are creative ways that other people have before engaged their enemies and to learn there's a million ways to do this that aren't striking somebody back or running away. One of my favorite examples of this in history is from one of my heroes, 1800 years ago. uh, Her name is Perpetua. Uh, she was a 22-year-old woman, so she's college age. Uh, and she was sent to the arena in Rome for her religious convictions. She was married, she had a child, um, but she was thrown into the arena with four of her friends to face their deaths before a cheering crowd. And there's, there's multiple eyewitness accounts of her death, um, and they reveal this, this Christ-likeness, this kingdom of God that was at work in and through Perpetua. At one point... So check this, just follow me. There's three examples of this, and they map on pretty well to three examples Jesus gives. I don't have time to do all that mapping, but, but there's three examples here of these eyewitness accounts. At one point, she was tossed by this wild bull, and she was like, laying, this, is, this is a crazy story, okay? This is, the, this is like, I don't even want to just say creativity because she's facing her death, and that, that, that puts a weight on this that's so much more intense than getting slapped on the face. But at one point, she'd been tossed by this wild bull, and she's laying there disheveled in the dust, with clothes torn, and she pulls her tunic so that it covers her thighs where this tunic was ripped. And she asks somebody in the crowd for a hairpin so she could fasten her hair. Why? Good question. That's a really good question. And she said that this is nuts. She said it's not right that a martyr should die with her hair in disorder, lest she seem to be mourning in her hour of triumph. She's not fixing her hair for an Instagram photo. She's not fixing her hair for vanity. She's like, this is my hour of triumph. And I don't want to look like I'm mourning right now when I'm when I'm gonna be the victor. What? Soon after that moment, her fixing up her hair, she was gored by a wired wild bull with a giant horn through her body. And she was bleeding, but she seemed to be oblivious to the pain, so the accounts say. And so this 22-year-old woman seeing her friends in disarray and starting to fall around her, she, people heard her cry out to them saying, you must all stand fast in your faith, love one another, and do not be weakened by what we have gone through. Friends, she's 22 years old. And when it became apparent that she wasn't going to die from the, the, quickly, at least, from bleeding out from this bull that gored her and from her being tossed around by wild animals, um, uh, she and one of her friends were still alive. Felicitas was still alive with her. They were ordered at a certain point to just be cut down because everybody was so tired of how long this was taking for these people to die. And so soldiers, gladiators, come on in, use your swords and hack them down. And when a gladiator's sword had cut her to the bone, She screamed, but she didn't die. And I want to read this word for word from an account of the story, okay? Quote, she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and she guided it to her throat. It was as though so great a woman, feared as she was by the unclean spirit, could not be dispatched unless she herself were willing. I can't tell you how many times... um, I, I've, I've poured out tears thinking of this woman's life and how she met her death at 22. Cause, and we all would have understood if she fought back. Uh, we all would understand if she cowered in fear as crowds are cheering for her death and they unleash a boar, a leopard, a bull, and some other, a bear as well, four wild beasts into this thing to tear her body apart. We would have understood if she tried to fight or she cowered. But she chooses this weird third way. She fixes her hair, she encourages her friends, and she guides a trembling gladiator's arm to his awful duty. And it begs this question when you see an account like this. What, what is she doing? What God is she following? What does she think is happening right now? What kind of kingdom is she living in? Because these are not the ways of the world. They testify to another king and to another kingdom. And some 1,800 years later, this woman helps me to believe that Jesus just might be who he says he is. That there's another kingdom coming because that moment in her life requires some kind of response from God, I think. And that in our hour of need, God might just be present and mighty with us like he was with her. When you're slapped or sued or taken advantage of, how do you respond? How will you respond and why will you respond that way if you think he's done he's not jesus presses further still in our text he said you've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy uh hate your enemy is not really in the bible but there's a longer discussion there but love your you've heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and I, I said this earlier, there may be no command which so distinctly separates the kingdom of God from the kingdoms of this world. In the kingdom of God, we love our enemies and we pray for them. And some of you immediately can call to mind enemies. Those who have maliciously wounded you or use you or step on you. And friends, your hope is not in vengeance. And it's not in your ability to carry out justice. You can never, by any of your acts, thoroughly undo wrongs that are done to you. Your hope is in God alone. And though it would be understandable and in accord with this world to pay back injustice with injustice, that would make sense. We would all understand it. An eye for an eye. But vengeance belongs to God, and Jesus has assured us that there's a day marked for judgment. And the Christian response to our enemies is to trust Jesus, not in some inner feeling way, not like I trust Jesus because I am trying to feel those th- feelings or think those thoughts. I trust Jesus and my, my trusting Jesus is through my creatively loving enemies and praying for those who persecute me. Because if I say, John would later say something like this. If you read 1 John later in the Bible, he would say, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar and the love of God is not in you. It's a direct quote right? Our our, our our faith must be married to action. It must be married to what we do. Jesus does not say, feel differently about your enemies. He says, love them. This is how we trust Jesus. And, and friends, I can testify to this, that loving an enemy feels like faith. It doesn't feel like super exciting. It feels like harrowing and daunting and like, I don't know if this is going to work kind of stuff, Right? And again, he's already laid out that he is not calling us to passivity or to be in a doormat for injustice. He's calling us to creative confrontations, to a radical kind of love for our own enemies. And, And you are not called to this sort of thing alone. Those of you who can name your enemies right now, you're not called to this alone, especially friends if you're still in relationships with people who persecute you. Seek wisdom in the community, the church, and let's help carry each other's burdens. And one more thought here, this is really important. Jesus doesn't say... Then I need to turn the other cheek when somebody slaps somebody else. There, there's, there's room for me, and there's a ton of scriptural backing for this. Mostly it's in our corporate structures of justice. But that when we see somebody else getting wounded or being persecuted, we ought to actually step in and help out. But when somebody wounds me, what do I do? Some of us struggle to name our enemies, though. And this is, I think this is a really peculiar phenomenon in the history of the world. Many people around the world in this moment right now, like as I'm saying these words right now, many people in this world, maybe most, know precisely who some of their enemies are. They have names and titles and there are concrete acts of violence against them that they can point to in recent history. And it seems to me that this is the common experience in history that people can name their enemies. And the peculiar thing is that some of us wonder who our enemies are. And in that space, I want to read a a very brief but famous quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Okay, listen. He says this, Let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I'm persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. The vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted when I'm contradicted. It may feel to many of us that our ideological opponents are our enemies. And they may from time to time be our enemies, but that's not a given. They just disagree with me. That's not, that doesn't mean somebody's my enemy. I don't think it's a given that someone who disagrees with you is an enemy of yours, but still, Jesus' wisdom is so good that even if someone isn't actually your enemy, but you just keep thinking that they are, his command is for you to love them. If you think somebody's your enemy, love them and pray for them. And his reconciling work will be at play. The point of Jesus' teaching here is that everyone loves their friends. Like Everybody loves their friends. That's, everybody loves people who love them. That's the common experience in the world. That doesn't set Jesus' people apart. You love your friends, everybody loves their friends. You like people who like you, everybody likes people who like them. But this kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is breaking into the world through Jesus, is marked by the strange practice of its citizens loving their enemies. And not just individually, not just I love my enemy and Josh loves Josh's enemy, but that corporately as churches gather together, if they are following Jesus, this is a litmus test for churches, friends. And for us as the house, when we get your Bible studies, your groups, the play, the, your friend groups, when we gather together corporately, if we're following Jesus, we ought to be praying for our enemies and for those who persecute us, not wishing for their demise. This is one of the main things that shows Christians to be sons and daughters of the Father. There's one other angle here. For some of us, one of our greatest enemies is within us. We, like our brother Paul in Romans chapter 7, war within us. And here, too, the command of Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. Love your enemy, even if the enemy is yourself maybe especially if the enemy is yourself. And if your very self is persecuting you, then please begin to pray for yourself. This is what the citizens in the kingdom of God do. And if you claim Jesus Christ as Lord, this is what ought to mark your life. Friends, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can't, of of course, you can just say no. You can say no to Jesus and his kingdom. But if you claim Christ, what do you mean if you don't take seriously this call? Hear Christ on the cross pray for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Or hear the first martyr of the church, Stephen. While rocks are being thrown at his head until he dies, the very last words he utters, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The non-Christian response, the non-Christian response to enemies is retaliation or maybe running away. That's the non-Christian response. The Christian response is love In in the shape of creative confrontation. The Christian response is love. And friends, there's no promise in these commands that our response will guarantee anything from people in this world. I think it's wise not to live according to the world, to retaliate. When you get slapped, to slap back, that never works. It never stops there. That's the, that's the lesson. When eye for an eye is introduced into the world, and it still exists even on, a, on our legal system today in a Latin phrase, this thing is just riddled the ancient world and the modern West, this eye for an eye language, it does often boundary the worst case scenarios that take place. Because the reality is when we begin to start retaliating, It doesn't stop until blood feuds break out and nations end. That's where it goes. Our our political landscape right now, the social climate that we live in, this utter polarization and, and despising. In the last four years, I've heard educated individuals call both our last president and our current president the Antichrist. We just utter hatred toward each of these people in different camps. And this is the fruit of retaliating, of somebody said something mean to me and I, and I don't think how would Christ call me to move toward them. I just abide by the kingdom of this world and look what's on display and look at the fruit of that labor. There aren't the promises, though, that if I begin to move toward my enemies in love, there aren't all these promises that are going to stop what they're doing. You may, as you love and pray for your enemies, continue to be persecuted. Maybe. Perpetua did die, and her husband was widowed, and her son was robbed of her mother, of his mother. The only promise Jesus gives directly in this text is that in loving our enemies, we get to live as the sons and daughters of God in the present world. And God has apparently decided that this is how he is revealing his kingdom in and through the world through his saints, loving their enemies, through his church, loving her enemies. Friends, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The only way we will ever be liberated and equipped to do this is to remember that God loves his enemies, that he loves you and me first, that anything we have to offer has already been offered to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's one of the reasons why it's important for us to proclaim this truth over each other, to gather regularly and be reminded of this truth, That God is for us and not against us. That he loves his enemies. And therefore, if God is for me, who can stand against me? In the kingdoms of this world, we love those who love us. And in the kingdom of God, even enemies are loved and prayed for. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Amen, amen, and amen.